Hello and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel and I am your host. To all my original listeners, welcome back. To all my new listeners, welcome. If you enjoy the podcast and wish to support this show, you can help support it by clicking on the support link in the description of any episode. I have also created a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. Section 4 of Edward I by Thomas Frederick Tout. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 2. Edward and the Barons' Wars. 1258 to 1267, Part 2. A new constitution was soon drawn up which put all power in the hands of three grand electors and their nominees a council of nine. But the marchers still held out. Queen Eleanor and her mercenaries still threatened invasion, and the Pope fulminated anathemas against Simon and his adherents. Accordingly, Simon found it necessary to repose further trust in the people. Hence, he summoned his famous Parliament of January 1265, in which, for the first time, knights of the Shire and representatives of the Burgesses sat side by side and deliberated in common with the bishops and barons who favored the popular party. No one now thinks that Simon's parliamentary convention was the first House of Commons, but it marks an important era in the development of our parliamentary institutions. Besides being the completest parliament that had hitherto been summoned, it is the first popular parliament consciously gathered together to deal with a great political crisis. It is not too much, therefore, to regard it as the first occasion on which the rulers of England deliberately took the people into partnership with them. It taught a lesson that was never effaced from the mind of the impatient prisoner at Kenilworth. In this Parliament, it was arranged that Edward was to surrender his earldom of Chester to Leicester and to be speedily released from captivity but the dark ambitions of Leicester and the brutal violence of his sons had again split up the popular party. No one could ever work long with Earl Simon. Gilbert of Gloucester's youthful enthusiasm for his brilliant mentor had now worn off. After a violent quarrel, he retired in anger to his estates and joined the marchers. Leicester accordingly marched to the west, taking Edward with him by way of precaution. About Whitsuntide, Edward was at Hereford, under the custody of Thomas of Clare, the brother of the Earl of Gloucester, by whose mediation a secret understanding was arrived at for his escape. One day, Edward went outside the city, attended by Thomas and a few knights for the sake of taking exercise, the conversation turned on horsemanship, and Edward, as if to try their paces, rode in turn all the horses of the party. At last he found out which steed was the swiftest and strongest, and mounting hastily upon it, 
rode off as hard as he could. His guardians soon saw that they were duped and galloped after him in pursuit. But Edward had got too good a start and was too well mounted to run much risk of capture. Before long he joined a band of armed marchers who were waiting for him in a wood and conducted him safely to the Mortimer's stronghold of Wigmore. He now made terms with the Earl of Gloucester. At Ludlow, Edward solemnly swore that if he obtained the victory, he would cause to be observed all the good old laws of the land, would do away with all evil customs, expel all aliens from the king's castles, court, and council, and take care that England should be ruled by Englishmen. It was an eventful moment. This Treaty of Ludlow marked the formal acceptance by Edward of the popular program, completed the transformation of parties which, through Edward's influence, had been slowly working ever since 1259. Henceforth, it was not Leicester but Edward who best represents the cause of orderly national progress. Leicester, with all his greatness, had made himself impossible, and his designs were more and more suspected. Henry becomes henceforth a mere puppet in his son's hands, and Edward, in taking his promises, had no more intention of outbidding the rival faction or dishing the Whigs. His whole future shows that he had convinced himself that the policy he swore to uphold at Ludlow was the right one. Henceforth, the English monarchy becomes both national and progressive. Leicester soon saw that the game was up, but manfully resolved to die fighting for the good old cause. A vast army gathered together under the standards of Edward and Gloucester. By the capture of Gloucester Town, they hemmed up Leicester on the right bank of the Severn and cut him off from his son Simon, who was gathering another army in the Midlands. While Leicester was marching wearily up and down the Severn, hoping to find a passage, Edward, on the 1st of August, surprised the younger Simon at Kenilworth and almost annihilated his army, though he failed to capture the castle into which Simon escaped. Meanwhile, Leicester had succeeded in crossing the Severn and had marched as far as Evesham on his road to Kenilworth, hoping to join forces with his son. There he learnt of the younger Simon's misfortunes. Conscious that his last hour was come, the great earl prepared with his handful of worn-out and dispirited troops to sell his life dearly to the victorious marchers. The situation of Evesham with respect to the Avon is not altogether dissimilar to that of Lewis with respect to the Ouse. The river makes a great curve to the south, and Evesham is situated on the right bank toward the southern sweep of the reach. On the 4th August, the Battle of Evesham was fought. Edward had taken the lesson of Lewis to heart and had marshaled his superior forces with consummate prudence. He himself occupied in force the sort of isthmus formed by the windings of the Avon a little to the north of Evesham. This cut off Leicester's only retreat by land. While Gloucester, who was posted with the rest of the army on the left bank of the river beyond the town, cut off all possibility of escape over Evesham Bridge. Leicester himself could not but admire his enemy's tactics. By the arm of St. James, he swore, 
they come on cunningly, yet they have not taught themselves that order of battle, but have learnt it from me. The battle was short but sharp. Edward and Gloucester advanced simultaneously to the attack amidst a terrible blare of trumpets. Slowly but surely the little army of Leicester was surrounded and overwhelmed. Earl Simon died fighting bravely. At his side perished his firstborn son Henry, the old playmate and companion of arms of the victor. Guy, the third son, was captured terribly wounded. The army of the good cause was annihilated, and Edward, by one day of victory, outdid the efforts of seven years of struggle. Henry III was now restored to liberty, though it was, in truth, little more than a change of masters. Henceforth, he was to act as the puppet of his son instead of of his brother-in-law. But years and misfortunes had still further relaxed the will of the old king, and Edward was so careful to pay him due deference, so affectionate and devoted to him, that all trace of former jealousy was removed, and perfect harmony remained between father and son until the end of Henry's life. One more difficulty still stood in the way of a complete settlement. The wild thirst of the victors for vengeance forced the vanquished to fight till the bitter end. A general sentence of forfeiture drove the remnants of the baronial party to renew their resistance in the autumn. The dead earl's stronghold of Kenilworth was the chief center of the renewed struggle, but the younger Simon held out amidst the marshy fastnesses of the Isle of Axholm. By building long wooden bridges over the sluggish streams that cut off Axholm from the mainland, Edward procured in November his cousin's surrender. In the spring, Edward won a great fight against the men of Winchelsea, which resulted in the surrender of the sink ports. He then turned his arms against a famous freebooter, an outlawed knight named Adam Gurdon, who headed a band of desperadoes that lurked in the Hampshire forests on the pretext of upholding to the last the good cause. Edward came upon Gurdon's camp in the neighborhood of Alton. Thoroughly delighted with the adventure, he rushed impetuously forward, heedless of the fact that his followers had got separated from him by a deep ditch. He engaged in personal conflict with his doughty antagonist, and having wounded him, captured him after a sharp tussle, and delighted with his bravery and daring, treated him with all honor, tending his wounds and regarding him as his guest rather than his captured enemy. But the non-knightly followers of Adam were hanged on the nearest tree by Edward's orders. Meanwhile, Kenilworth still held out. Its long resistance at last taught Edward that clemency was not only right, but politic. After failing to storm the castle, Edward offered the disinherited to restore them their lands on condition of their paying a fine amounting to five years' rental. The general acceptance of the terms of this dictum de Kenilworth practically ended the English rising but a few desperados, specially exempted from the pardon, still strove to hold the Isle of Ely as their fellows had previously held Axholm. They maintained their position so bravely that Edward was forced to go in person to the siege. 
By building causeways of wattles over the marshy fenland, he secured an access to the stronghold of the disinherited. Treachery did something more, but clemency finally ended the struggle. Edward at last offered the enemies the terms of Kenilworth, whereupon they surrendered. This ended the war in England, but Clewellyn of Wales still held out in the west, and as long as he was in arms, the cause of the Montfort could not be said to be dead. But the papal legate, Odoban, who had already done good work for peace, now offered his powerful intervention, which both Edward and Clewellyn hastened to accept. By the Treaty of Shrewsbury, terms of exceptional liberality were offered to and accepted by Clewellyn. In this treaty, Henry recognized Clewellyn as Prince of all Wales, and allowed him to receive the homage of all the Welsh barons save the degenerate representatives of the old lines of princes of the south, who were still allowed the greater dignity of immediate vassals of the crown. Edward's old territory of the four cantreds was fully surrendered to him, though this course left Edward nothing of his Welsh estates save the lands around Carmarthen. It was a great day of triumph for the Welsh national cause. It was also a great day of rejoicing to Edward, who thus by a noble surrender concluded his great work of peace and reconciliation. For the rest of the old king's reign, the land remained in profound peace, thanks to the wise policy of Edward in identifying the monarchy with the more solid and permanent parts of the policy of the dead Earl of Leicester. In the nine years of struggle, Edward's character had matured and his experience ripened. He had already shown that he ranked among the first knights, generals, and statesmen of Christendom. Now that the swords of his followers were turned to plowshares and their lances to reaping hooks, Edward again went back to his old pastime of the tournament. But he soon resolved to consecrate to a higher purpose the sword which he had so often wielded against his kinfolk and his countrymen, or in the savage sports of the tilt-yard. In June 1268, Edward took the crusader's vow to rescue the sepulchre of Christ from the insults of Islam. End of section 4「Thank you for listening to this episode of All Things Plantagenet. Remember, we also have a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com, where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the other episodes. Thank you for listening, and have a great day. »